This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. How the heck does petitionary prayer work in a world where there's so much suffering and evil? Is praying for others just a religious, superstitious practice that does nothing at all except make the person praying feel better? If we don't pray for others, does God allow them to get sicker, lose potential rent money, and suffer in their addictions? Is that who God really is? Can we engage in prayer that is more effective, less harmful, and doesn't make God look like an unfair, stingy, and fickle jerk? If you are looking for a pioneering book on prayer that is thought-provoking, challenging, and endorsed by some of today's most well-known authors and scholars— then Divine Echoes is the book for you. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hey friends, welcome to the New Evangelicals Podcast. No, you didn't click on the wrong show. This is not Tim speaking. You're not going crazy, I promise. My name is Noah, I'm the podcast producer, and if you're a regular listener of the show, you might have heard my voice before. It's been a hot minute since Tim and I have been able to jump on and have a conversation together, probably since Christmas. So time's really flying. Hopefully we'll be able to do that again soon. But in the meantime, I'm just here to steal a little bit of Tim's mic time and tell you how excited I am for you to listen to this episode of the show. This is a conversation that Tim had with Catherine Stewart. Catherine Stewart is the author of a book called The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And this conversation was so helpful to me. If you're like me and you're looking at what's happening in the evangelical churches that we grew up in and in the political system in America today and just going, how the hell did we get here? Like, what is going on right now? Uh, Catherine is so brilliant about breaking down a lot of the strategic moves that have been made by think tanks and advocacy groups and pastoral organizations that have come together over the course of decades to really get us to where we are today and to this influence that Christian nationalism is having in so many of the political debates and legislation getting presented today. I found it so helpful. It put together so many puzzle pieces in my mind, and hopefully it's helpful to you too. And believe it or not, it ends on a really positive and hopeful note about where we can go as individuals and as members of our local communities today to really make a difference and to promote the work of justice and human flourishing. Friends, if you like this show, if it has a meaningful place in your life week to week, you can support us in a couple different ways. You can leave a review on whatever platform you listen to this episode on. Helps boost us in the algorithm, whatever that means. It helps more people find the episode, and it's so helpful. If you want to support us financially as well, there's a link in the show notes to get some more information on how you can do that. Again, you hear Tim say it every week, but one of the core values of what we do here is to make sure that this information is accessible to everyone without any paywalls. So all of our our book clubs, our Zoom groups, groups, our um, theology classes, the podcasts, the social media pages, everything is completely free, accessible to anyone at all time, and that's entirely possible through the support of the community. So again, you can check out that link in the show notes if you're interested in donating. That being said, 
It's been great to be here with you again this week. Hopefully, we'll be able to spend some more time together soon in the future. And enjoy the episode. I'll see you soon. All right. Well, Catherine Stewart, you and I have actually been talking for quite a while behind the scenes. And I know we've been trying to make this interview happen. So I'm so glad it, it finally did. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's so great to be in conversation with you as always. And I'm thrilled that we can make it work. Absolutely. I um, I found out about you through my friend, Reverend Ben Kramer. He was a big fan of your work. And I said, let me check it out. And then I, I saw you did a book called The Good News Club. And I'm like, well, I've been a part of CEF, Child Evangelism Fellowship, for a long time as a kid. So I got that. And then I read The Power Worshippers. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I need to reach out to Catherine because you know, we as an organization have been tracking Christian nationalism, maybe for the past like year or so, but you're way ahead of me on that. I mean, your book was almost prophetic in nature. Um, and so I'm glad we're able, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm glad we're able to have this conversation to talk. Um, so yeah, so, so, so the, it, it's, it's just cool to have you on. I want to start here. Um, I ask all my guests the same question, but how did you grow up? Like, were you in Christian or evangelical spaces at all? Or like, how did you find out about Christian nationalism? What, what, what caused you to fall into this work? Well, I first got into this topic in 2009. I was living in Santa Barbara, California. Our daughter was six and our son was a baby. And I learned that a good news club was coming to our school. Yeah. And good news clubs, as you know, are designed to convert very young children, children too young to read, in fact, uh, in their earliest years of learning into a deeply, I would say, reactionary form of evangelical Christianity. We all know evangelicalism is, evangelical Christianity is um, a spectrum. And this is really on a kind of, um, I would say, the far right end of it. So um, I uh, was really astonished to learn that there were thousands of these clubs operating in public schools nationwide. But before that, um, I heard from, you know, mom, the Good News Club was coming to our school. And first I thought, this is great news. They said they were going to teach Bible study from a non-denominational standpoint. And look, I was really naive. I thought non-denominational meant non-sectarian. And I do mm. think we can teach about the Bible, even in public schools. If I took a Bible class when I was in public school. It was truly non-sectarian. And uh um, teaching, you know, the stories is sort of mythology and history and literature and things like that. It's really interesting. But yeah. I started to hear stories in, uh, you know, in town about kids attending the clubs um, who were starting to target their non-Christian peers or their incorrectly Christian peers for what I could only describe as faith-based bullying and bigotry. So a little girl we knew was on the playground. Uh, her name is Zoe. And her friend who had started attending a good news club, Ashley, came up to her and had figured out she was the only Jewish girl in the class and said, you don't believe in Jesus, so you're going to go to hell. And Zoe said, that's not true. And they sort of got into it. And the teacher overheard the conversation. And she explained, look, different religions teach different things. And, and Zoe was completely fine with that. And she was like, yeah, see, it's different religions. That's all. Mm. And Ashley, the girl attending the Good News Club, she was really upset and she started crying. And she said, I know it's going to be true because they taught it to me in school and they don't teach things in school that aren't true. So this is the issue with good news clubs. I don't have a problem with kids talking about their religion at school with their friends, but I do have a problem with kids being deceived into thinking that their public school 
endorses a very particular form of religion and then using that misperception to try and you know target their peers for faith-based bullying and bigotry um around that same time a mom who's catholic said her daughter came home and said mommy we're going to go to hell because we don't go to the right kind of church mm. and so there's actually you know our, our school is in the same district as westmont college which is as you know a beautiful evangelical college and I would say our parent body was maybe a third to half of evangelical, but, you know, um, very diverse in terms of outlook. So um, so a group of the uh, Westmont moms met with the Good News Club leaders, and they said, we'd like to offer you free and better space in the evangelical church literally next door to the school, right? Like next door, same time, for free, and frankly, a prettier space, <laughs> yeah, right. you ask me. Um, and the Good News Club leaders defined uh, declined. I mean, you know, they said, you're just not right for the school, but we, we want you to keep doing the work you're doing. So here's mm. space in our church. The Good News Club leaders declined. And, and all of this started to raise questions. I thought, well, first of all, what are my friends at school? What do these moms know that I don't? Why don't they want a Good News Club in our school? And what do the Good News Club leaders really believe? And above all, how is it legal and possible for them to operate in the public schools in the first place, given separation of church and state. Like we're all free to practice our faith, if any, in um, houses of worship and public parks and in our homes, or sometimes people rent businesses or movie theaters to have church services and things like that. Yeah. So why, and you know, there was no shortage of church space in our community. So I just fell down that rabbit hole. <laughs> And, you know, I went to their national convention. I thought, well, if they have a right to come to my public school, I have a right to go to their convention. <laughs> I guess that's so true. So I did. And I, you know, I, I, I wrote a little story for the Santa Barbara Independent about Good News Clubs, just sort of raising a lot of these questions that I just raised with you. And I heard from parents all over the country. I mean, I don't know how this happened. I was writing for local publications, you know, Santa Barbara Magazine, Santa Barbara Independent. Somehow the story went viral. I think there was a pent up desire by parents who had experienced all this drama in their public schools when a good news club came to town. Mm. So that really kind of set me on my journey. And the more research I did on good news clubs, which, you know, by the way, are targeting kids literally K through five in public um, elementary age. Like the more research I did, the more I realized that the, the, they were, Good News Clubs were really part of an attack on public education. Like leaders of the Good News Clubs were so hostile to the institution of public education, even as they were exploiting our school buildings and using the, you know, the heating and cooling and the furniture that we, the taxpayer, paid for. And yet they'd call our schools government schools. They called our children, um, you know, they called the schools mission fields and they referred to our children as the harvest. And they yeah. said that these these yeah. schools were scenes of spiritual battle. I'm sure this is all very familiar to you. Well, I, I it is familiar to me, but I'm not sure how much the audience is aware of this. So I want to break it down for them because so there's this organization called Child Evangelism Fellowship. They are actually one of the largest um, um, organizations aimed at really proselytizing children. They're, so in, in in evangelical language, they're, they're the, one of the world's largest children's ministries. And I was a part of them for a long time. I the the um 
I live in New Jersey. And so in my town, there was a good news club. And actually, the state director of CEF in New Jersey was down the road for me. That's how I found out about these good news clubs. I would go there every Thursday. You know, and it's like a, it's like, um, it's almost like an hour power hour where, you know, they, they sing songs and they do a Bible lesson and a mission story, et cetera. Well, was it, was it, it probably wasn't in your public school. Well, not yet. So, yes, so, exactly. so, so this took place in the director's house in basements, right? Right, right? And from there, I got involved in what was called uh, CYIA, which is a division of theirs called Christian Youth in Action. Now, as a teenager, you can go to what's called training school. You get trained on how to kind of teach what they call backyard five-day clubs. And you would go to someone's house. And you would almost hold a, a vacation Bible school type of event that would happen from Monday to Friday, then you would go to the next house the next week and you would raise your support as like a summer missionary and CEF would pay you from those donations. So I did that from, I had to be 12 up to probably close to 19 or 20. Okay. And I got pretty deep on, on, on the New Jersey side of things. Now, during this time, of course, I'm still very evangelical. I'm still conservative. It's all I know. I hear whispers of, hey, pray that we can bring these good news clubs to the public school system, right? Because we're, we're, we're going to the Supreme Court to litigate that we have a right to teach these things in the, in the schools oh, and the so government is hostile to us. And, and, and yada, yada. So on my end, as you're telling this story from what, you know, the vantage point that we see it from now, on the other end of that, I'm 15 being like, yeah, we have to get this out to whoever we can. And, you know, the public schools are a great place to help share the good news of Jesus, which really is in their mind. If you don't pray this prayer, if you don't repent, you're end up you're going to burn in hell forever. But what they say is separated from God. That's how they, they make it softer, right? But the same ideology applies. Well, they say, you know, you're, you're worthless. You're, you're like a worthless, dirty rag and rags need to be thrown away. I'm actually quoting from, uh, their five, uh, you know, one of the lessons in their five year curriculum that I was able to see, which is taught in every good news club from coast to coast. I mean, the emphasis is overwhelmingly on sin, obedience and hell. And, you know, yeah. uh, 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 there are very only a few glancing references. The five year curriculum that I saw a few years ago. Um, uh, someone did an independent study of it and said there were only two or three glancing references to the golden rule, loving your neighbor as yourself, royal law, things like that. So yeah. it's a very hierarchical. So one thing that was really interesting to me is I went to their national convention, which is in Alabama, and the keynote speakers, like one of the keynote speakers said that, I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, they, he said that, interfaith marriages should be called interracial marriages and they were to be condemned. And I mean, it just kind of shows there's a, you know, the, the, the lines of inside between insider and outsider it's but the pure versus the impure, the, those who are sort of have the correct religious and frankly political viewpoint, because there's a whole political overlay on a lot of what they're teaching and those who are who are not, and just to characterize interfaith relationships as interracial relationships, I mean, it's really disgraceful. And yeah. say they could be condemned, I mean, it's so dehumanizing. Um, I well, found this I really deeply that. upsetting. <laughs> it <laughs> is upsetting. No, it's a, it's it's a fair point. I mean, you know, I used to teach these kids the wordless book. It's this yeah. book that has no 
text, but it walks them through how things were good, then sin, now you're a bad person. And sin person. is represented by the black page. It and is. And then salvation is represented by the white page. And it in is. fact, when it's I true. was looking through their materials, look, and I went deep into the Good News Club, went to their some of their training programs. Um, uh, you know, I always had to stop at the point where you have to sign a statement of faith because I can't lie. But I, I just go places that I'm allowed to go. So I went to the churches where they're holding their training programs for folks and things like that. There were um, there was stuff saying, you know, really racist stuff about Asians or about Catholics, you know, who are in this sort of whole seminar about um, converting children, Latino and, and Hispanic children. There was a lot of stuff about, oh, there was just a lot of racism, just overt racism. It was really disturbing. And I thought, listen, these folks have a right to their religion. We have religious freedom in this country. They have a right to practice and worship and teach their children as they choose in their homes, in their churches. Yeah. But why are they targeting public schools? And they were provoking such division in the public schools where they came. So like in our public school, there's a lady who is um, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. She was so upset. She was like, can you imagine if we were doing this in the public schools? It would right. be all over the national news. And right. she was absolutely right. There was a father from a country torn apart by religious wars. And he was writing impassioned letters to the principal saying, I can't believe this is happening in, in America. Like we fled our country to get away from this. And now it's happening here too. Neighbors fought bitterly and, and some were attacked for their faith and ethnicity. And I came to see that the division provoked by the appearance of a good news club took me a long time to get my head around this, but the leaders were not actually upset about this. In fact, they seemed to welcome it because they viewed public education with contempt. Well, it's very interesting because, you know, this is a part of my life that I never really talked about in the New Evangelicals, not because it, it, I'm hiding it, it just never really came up a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And and no one really understood like what that organization is. And it's, it's, for me, it's fascinating because I still have good friends that I made during those times who we've kind of walked through life together now. Um, and, you know, and, and I still know people who are close to the organization. And, you know, when you're in it, you just kind of assume like, oh, Right. We have the truth of God. We have the Bible. We have the gospel. People are going to hell. Therefore, the most loving thing we can do is tell people how they're going to hell unless they convert. Now, that does, I must admit, now sound very outlandish and like, okay, wait a second. We have things to talk about here. But when you're in that bubble, uh, especially the evangelical bubble, it makes complete sense, right? And what happens is because there is um, we can, we call it now a Christian nationalist bent, but back then I would say a conservative po politic bent. There is this idea of, you know, well, this, the world's against us. The public schools are hostile to us. Um, we have a right to proselytize the children inside of public schools because, you know, um, maybe America's a Christian country in their mind, or they weaponize freedom of religion to then proselytize. So it is fascinating processing this with you, Catherine, in the moment from like part of me that used to be on one side as an 18 year old, like, yeah, we have to do this. to now being like, wow, that was actually overriding the rights of others. And oftentimes you're right. We would use tricky practices to get folks to come to the after school program where I don't know if students understood that it was not a public school sanctioned event. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. I mean, that happens all the time where they'll distribute, you know, a flyer in the public school saying, 
come after school. It's, you know, fun and balloons and games and prizes. And then the kids get there. And a lot of parents, look, I'm mom, I got two kids. I know what it's like after school, an extra hour, you know, often it starts right after the bell, you know, it almost always starts right after the school day ends. It gives you, as a parent, gives you an extra hour of free time or, you know, so you can work or take care of your other kids or whatever you're doing. And um, uh, you do another load of laundry. I mean, that time when your kids are in school is actually really valuable. And a lot of folks want their kids to receive religious education. They think, well, it, but they don't maybe want to go to church themselves. They think it's such a convenient setting. You know, they hear Bible stories, fun games, balloons, and they don't recognize that, you know, then the kids are coming home and saying, mom, we got to go to church. We got to go to a Bible believing church. Um, so I heard a lot when, you know, when I was at some of their training programs, I heard like United Methodist Church and, um, and um, Congregationalist churches and other Christian denominations described as new age religion. Like there's this, it's not like pan sectarian. It's not like within the Christian tradition. It's very, it's funny. I, I sent the statement of faith to a friend of mine who collaborated on a book called the handbook of Christian denominations. And, I just, you know, said, what does this sound like to you? And he said, independent fundamentalist Baptist. It does, 100%. Yeah. I mean, there there was even debates over people who speak in tongues. Can they be part of the organization? So you're absolutely right on all that. And we are going to segue in a minute here to kind of the broader picture. But one last thing I think that is worth mentioning is that in my experience, the people who I worked with, even though their impact might not have been great, they really thought that that they were loving these kids as best as possible, right? And they were so sweet. Some of them did. Like, I, know. So I think about my own life. I'm like, I remember, I remember the folks who taught me. They were they they gave so much time and energy to loving me as a teen and being patient with me as a teen, and also to these kids. And they were convinced that they were doing the best thing by rescuing them from the depths of hell by having them pray this prayer. I and it, I'm not. I don't know. I'm, I'm not conflicted, but it's just like. That's tough because I think it's so easy to villainize, right? This organization just burn, attacking society. It's like, yes, I think there are angles of that on a organizational level, but the actual like workers, they had no clue what they were involved with, you know? <laughs> well, I know. I, you know, a lot of the folks I met were incredibly nice people. They truly believed they were doing, you know, they enjoyed children. They truly believed they were doing good things for the communities, but all their good intentions have been harnessed in service of an agenda that is degrading public education and destroying, uh, you know, increasing po political polarization and frankly um, dividing communities with religious division. And, yeah. and, and so I, I, what I came to see is that the Good News Club were just one small part of a larger attack on public education yes. and the attack on public education is really just one small part of a larger attack on um, America, frankly, as, an, as a constitutional pluralistic democracy. And so I published my first book in this topic in 2012 and over the years just kept researching and writing and digging deeper. And I wrote The Power Worshippers to show like the machinery of the movement. I mean, good news clubs are just one T frankly, small part of this yeah. larger um, strategic machinery. I would call they call children strategic machinery, by the way. Uh, Matt Staver, uh, it reminds me, he says, you know, um, if you want to change the direction of the cruise ship, you got to go after that one, the most, children, the most strategic machinery 
you have, you get to go after those children ages five to 12. They're the most strategic age group we have. So, the, you know, I think it's, it's true. Like, I was taught that, by the way. Yeah. 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 And it's probably true. I mean, that's when kids are most likely to form their, um, their, their religious worldviews or their, you know, a lot of their views. So, although, as we know, those views can shift dramatically over time. So, so how did you move? How did you start? It sounds like what you're saying is that is that Good News Clubs and CEF, that was maybe the first thread. But as you pulled, what was that next part that was like, oh, this is bigger than I thought? The legal strategy, no question. Once I looked into that 2001 Supreme Court decision called Good News Club versus Milford Central School that had allowed these clubs, which had operated for decades in churches and homes and parks and places like that, which I don't frankly have a problem with. Um once they went into the public schools because of a 2001 Supreme Court decision. So I thought, well, how did that decision come about? And mm. so I researched all of the cases, which took place over 15 years. Uh, I learned about groups like the Alliance Defending Freedom, which has an annual operating budget now of $102 million a year. I heard that, by the way, from their vice president of communications. He reached out to me because I was working with a 2018 figure that was lower. And he's like, no, our budget now is up to 102. Anyway, so I oh learned about gosh. the Alliance Defending Freedom. I learned about Liberty Council. I learned about the Federalist Society. And I learned that this is a movement that is really, I think, to an underappreciated degree, the strategy is led by the legal strategists of the movement. And I, I recognize that they had put into place over 15 years, these novel legal building blocks. Over time, you bring the right case to the right court. And based on that case, you get this one piece. It's like you get a tool you're going to need to get the next win in the next court and then the next win in the next court. And all of that built up to that 2001 Supreme Court decision in which the um, Alliance Defending Freedom argued that religion isn't really religion. It's just speech from a certain point of view. And therefore, these activities are legal, you know, under the free speech clause. Now, for many years, these kinds of activities in public schools, you know, taxpayer-funded schools, were excluded because of the Establishment Clause concerns. The idea that public schools, since they're funded by the taxpayer, they should neither affirm nor deny any particular religious viewpoint, but instead kind of be religiously neutral so that kids from all families and all, you know, all walks of life could be comfortable in the public schools. Mm. And that is something that Americans fought for for many years. I mean, we have to remember that when Catholics started to you know, immigrate to our country in large numbers, things went absolutely haywire in the public schools because they were teaching the King James Bible, not the Catholic version of the Bible, the Dewey Reams. They were, Catholics were excluded um, from, you know, the textbooks with, were filled with incredibly bigoted um, uh, information about Catholics and the Pope and things like that. And um, and children from Catholic families were being compelled to um, read from the Protestant Bible, and there was a lot of pushback. And things came to such a head that in 1840s, people fought and died in the streets of Philadelphia over the issue of Bible in public schools. And over time, uh, there's a quote from uh, Ulysses Grant. He said, keep, you know, I, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he said, he was referring to the public school, you know, the Bible wars. And he said, you know, keep the church and state forever separate. Mm. Meaning, you know, so that the public institutions, uh, public education, 
should be comfortable for all Americans, whatever their faith may be. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, okay, so you're, I'm, I'm trying to pull that that whole narrative of like, you know, how you ended up this deep into this world and such such an authoritative uh, authoritative figure on it because your books are so well done and they're so detailed. I mean, the power worshippers, it gets to a point in a good way where it's like. Oh my God, the rabbit hole is so much deeper than I ever thought. Even as someone who who exists and grew up in these spaces, right? I'm like, wow, uh, there's a lot here. Can you talk a little bit? And this is something that I've I've wanted to pick apart for a while, and I think you have a good grasp on it. Can you talk about 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 how Christian nationalism is funding itself? Because oh. it seems like their war chest, so to speak, is just endless. Um, it's huge. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, their movement has three sources of funding. The first is pri- public, uh, private funding, large donors, people who are like, uh, you know, billionaires, um, like, mm. I mean, the Prince DeVos family and the, um, the Lindsay's and, uh, Skype and McClellan and the Bradley Foundation. And I mean, there's just a, a tremendous, you know, very wealthy people in America are very diverse as well. Um, but there's a subsection of very wealthy people who are really devoted to funding pieces of this movement. And, you know, they're not just interested in the right-wing positions, uh, the social, like the culture war issues du jour. They're not just interested in abortion, same-sex marriage and stuff like that. What they're really after is a broad-based right-wing economic policy. I mean, you know about biblical economics, the idea of tying kind of reactionary religion to far-right economic positions. Mm. This is the kind of policies that will actually increase the level of um, economic inequality that's reached record levels today. I mean, you know, don't take my word for it. Look at The Economist, where we've reached a new Gilded Age where it's just, you know, there's a movement that claims to stand for family values, but Mm. they're driving support for economic policies that are actually stripping um, security from the middle class, of reducing the middle class, making it so much harder for so many American families to succeed. So anyway, that's a long answer for the first piece of their funding. And it's a big piece of their funding. Mm. Um, so many of those big funders, I mean, I name a number of them in the power worshipers, yep. um, the Wilkes brothers. I mean, there's so many others. Um, and I've named others in some of the other writing that I've done. Then there's um, a second source of funds is small dollar donations from the rank and file. Mm. I don't know about you. I get email every single day from students for life of America and the family research council, faith and freedom. They're always looking for small dollar donations Yeah, and they get, you know, from some number of folks. And then the third source of funding is public funding. My money and yours taxpayer funding. I think a lot of the calls for quote unquote religious freedom that characterize this movement are actually efforts to get their initiatives, their right-wing religious initiatives funded by the government, and they're succeeding. I think there's no example more clear than the example of public education. This movement that for many years has sought to, look, Jerry Falwell made the agenda clear, right? 1979, he said, I hope to see the day when there are no more public schools, churches will have taken them over and Christians will be running them. So they've been trying to get funding for their schools for some time. I mean, think about somebody like Betsy DeVos, who is uh, Trump's former education secretary. She agitated for a very long time for school vouchers. And yet 
voucher initiative after voucher initiative that she supported failed in Michigan. So she and her husband kind of flipped to what they call school choice, conflating charters and vouchers into this issue they call school choice. Mm. And um, they've characterized their public school activism, their education activism as a way of advancing God's kingdom. They literally said that advancing God's kingdom. They said it's a means of um, achieving greater kingdom gain, but they're, um, Rich DeVos, Betsy DeVos's husband, gave a, a talk to the Acton Institute. It's a right-wing uh, think tank. And he said, we got to be quiet about talking too openly about these activities. Mm. So they really are trying to, you know, like vouchers do two great things Not for them. Number one, mm. deflate and weaken public education. And number two, take taxpayer funding and, and funnel it to religious schools, which are free to teach uh, contempt for people of other faiths. They're free to teach kind of D David Barton-esque version <laughs> of history. And then there's also a lot of folks who are allied with them who are charter school um, proponents. I think about Hillsdale, Betsy DeVos's family. Yeah. has been very deeply involved in Hillsdale College, where sometimes they're a little too smart to actually put right, like reactionary religion into the, into the program because it is taxpayer funded. But they put everything else. They put the right wing, like economic ideology, a kind of idea of, um, I would say, uh, nationalistic patriotism, which is not the same thing as real patriotism. It's tying the idea of America to explicit, like specific cultural and implicitly racial identities and things like that. Um, I, I actually want to point out, and this is important, especially with, with Betsy DeVos, you know, she was over the public education in the country. Like Trump appointed her, and she is tied to movements and ideologies that actually want to undermine public education yeah. and replace public education with what she would call school choice or some other form. And that's important because I don't think people always make that, make that connection of like just how powerful these folks are, right? So, like, Betsy could have a view that maybe in America is actually the minority view of public education, but she's the one in control and overseeing the public education department that affects, you know, national issues. That's a big deal. Yeah. You know, they very much so. And they also, you know, a lot of it is about the money. They know that, you know, there's tens of billions of dollars devoted to public education in America and this movement knows if they can get their hands on a piece of it, the money will flow without end to churches, to religious entrepreneurs that sort of want to start some, I don't know, uh, uh, private religious school and they get the government to funnel, you know, to fund it. And, uh, it's, it's, it, that kind of bid for religious freedom, meaning a kind of public funding of, of churches and other, Religious organizations applies in other areas as well. The movement for a long time tried to get the government to um, rebuild churches uh, in the event of a storm so that they don't have to afford insurance. Like, think about like what that storm um, in Texas where Matt, you remember Mattress Mac, he opened his, his doors to the people and let them sleep and on his mattresses and in his, his, he had a furniture store. Um, well, a lot of these churches have said, well, we do first, you know, we offer a lot of services. So if we have a storm damage, the government should pay for it. Well, we're all free to buy insurance. And that's a tool that we can all do, buy insurance. And, and then we get those sort of storm damages covered. 
but this is a movement that, you know, really worked very hard and ran a, a big case about that. And, um, and they, they got their way. And, and a lot of the churches claimed, well, you know, we can't afford, afford storm damage. Uh, we can't afford that insurance. But a lot of those churches were actually not providing first, you know, uh, any help in, in the event of, um, mm. uh, in the event of a, you know, a, a public disaster or anything like that. Some do and some don't. And we all remember that, um, Joel Osteen's church, uh, didn't open its doors until they got all that, all that support and other people and uh, businesses and community organizations do help regardless, but they're not expecting to have to get out of the cost of buying storm insurance and things like that. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it's a small, it's a small example, but there are so many like dozens of examples like it. No, I mean, as someone who grew up in these spaces, I mean, I can think about just example after example as well of, of people telling us we have to fight for our freedom by fighting for A, B, C, D, or E. Man, it, it, it's the web of of the funding and and the players of Christian nationalism seems to get more and more complicated each day. One question I had about the public schools, and we're going to move on a little bit, uh, is: Do you think? So I'm thinking about about R.J. Rush Dooney. We we we've covered him before on the show uh, with folks like Julie Ingersoll coming on and kind of breaking down how how R.J. kind of laid the foundation for this Reconstruction movement. And a big target was really destroying the public education system. And I'm thinking about a lot of the rhetoric we've seen from far right media, uh, the the critical race theory panic over nothing. You know, Christopher Rufo saying blatantly on Twitter, we're going to make this, you know, a catch-all phrase for anything anti-racist. And then you have people freaking out, quote unquote, you know, uh, trying to take over their school boards. Or you have this groomer rhetoric, you know, the, the public school systems are indoctrinating our kids and they're grooming our children. Is that tied into this uh, this movement to really undermine public education and to get people into you know private schooling? Absolutely. I mean, it's like a twofer in a way. All that stuff, that sort of panic over. Uh, oh, by the way, you mentioned Rush Dooney. He, I remember he said public education trains women to be men. I'm like, oh, I missed that lesson. <laughs> he said, you know, chaos, uh, de- disintegration into the void. I mean, he had a terrible thing to say about public schools. But yeah, like the current panic over critical race theory, which is, by the way, not taught in any public uh, schools. Um, but the, as you said, Christopher Rufo sort of decodified the phrase and then recodified it to mean everything that people don't like, you know. Um, uh it's it's a two for it. On the one hand, it um, fosters distrust in public schools, mm. you know, and then it, because people think, and then it also creates a desire for people to, um, you know, and, and also like you know gets a new generation of activists involved. So the, these groups like Moms for America and um, Defending Ed and these kinds of groups, many of which are getting support from organizations such as Heritage um, or, again, you know, Manhattan Institute. Or I think about um, the Family Research Council, which mm. held a, quote-unquote, CRT boot camp led by uh, William Boykin, who's out there getting these parents involved. But what it's doing is it's almost like a new tea party, right? Yeah. It's activating people at the local level to get really engaged, showing up at school board meetings really angry, I mean, frankly, a lot of like the school board stuff is like, it's pretty boring. It's like, oh, I mean, is that a terrible thing to say? <laughs> Having spent a lot of time at school board meetings, 
it's like, oh, okay, well, are we gonna, you know, um, I don't know. There's like just a lot of little things that have to happen to right. keep a public school running. And they're not like the sexy culture war issues at all. It's about, you know, funding and, you know, the, the parents weekend or the, you know, right. you know, the international night or whatever they're doing. It's about stuff right. like that or, right. or stuff about, you know, tutelage and hiring, you know, all this sort of nitty gritty. But, you know, you, you have a lot of folks who are really devoted to their communities and their public schools going to these meetings and or volunteering for these really, frankly, time intensive positions that they can barely take on given their responsibilities with their children and sometimes their, their jobs. And then they're besieged by these folks who are showing up angry. And I have a friend who teaches second grade math in Simi Valley, second grade math. Okay. He said, parents have started showing up and saying, are you teaching critical race theory to our kids? He's like, I am teaching second grade math. Let me show you my textbooks. Right. Right. I mean, it's just a panic. It's a, it's a race panic. The stuff about the transports, it's a sex panic. I mean, and gender anxiety is the rocket fuel of this movement. It really is. And whatever you think of those issues, right, which affect some tiny, vanishingly small number of right. children, whatever you think of those issues, we have real problems in our country. And this kind of polarization and getting us all talking about this one little issue oh, over my here, gosh, yes. while we're going to be dealing with all this stuff over there, it's, 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 it's incredibly um, counterproductive. Well, it, it is, you know, I call it the boogeyman uh, technique, and it's really effective in evangelical spaces. Listen, as a kid, you know, um, I I would hear whispers from adults, "Oh, so and so's kid went to a, a liberal college, and it's 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 not a Christian college, and uh, you know, don't watch this movie. Pokemon cards aren't aren't good. Satanic panic, the liberal agenda, progress, you know, rock music, you name it. There's always there's always been this nebulous thing out there." That is going to destroy us any day now if we don't get it out of our churches. And for me, critical race theory or uh, or groomers is 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 uh, the next evolution, right? Um, uh, of what of what that technique is, and it's only a matter of time before we we see new stuff. I mean, in a year from now. No one's going to be talking about critical race theory or groomers. It will be the next boogeyman, you know, that, that, that it, but it ties back to, it does tie back though to similar people groups, right? It, it it's yeah. usually attacks minorities or people who, um, you know, are not heteronormative. So they're going to find a way to recreate the same problem, but it is really effective. And what I have found is that it cuts off the ability for good faith dialogue, for critical thinking, uh, for us to have a real discussion and to listen and learn and really think about, about what are the best policies, right? Yeah. Because it's all weaponized to be, oh my God, if this happens, the end of America is coming and Joe Biden's radical Marxist agenda has won and you're going to be in the gulags. I mean, that's kind of how they talk about it, frankly. The boxcars, they have, I've heard yeah. folks talk about they're going to lock us up in boxcars. This yeah. is a movement that encourages its followers to believe that they are in an apocalyptic struggle between yes. absolute good and absolute evil. And the consequences of loss in the political arena are really too dire to, um, to imagine. So right. that primes them to take place in radical actions. I mean, you think we think about January 6th, a lot of the folks who are members of those uh, groups that stormed the, 
you know, capital and committed all that violence and, and, and mayhem, they had been persuaded that Trump was literally chosen by God. So if the other guy won, it must be against God's will. And, and therefore, you know, they need to fight for, you know, for God. They, they saw themselves as holy warriors. Yeah, no, well said, well said. Let's talk about the Supreme Court, because I got to be honest, I, I'm reading the Power Worshippers, well, actually, I was listening to it technically, and and you talk about uh, how, you know, they, how really, uh, we're going to say Christian nationalists, that's kind of the rhetoric that we're using now, um, but, you know, Christian nationalists want the Supreme Court, and they want to use it to overturn Roe v. Wade, and you wrote that before, Christian nationalists stacked the Supreme Court and then overturned Roe v. Wade. And I'm like, holy shit, Catherine is a damn prophet. Like, you know, you called it. But can you talk more about, about, about when you started realizing that and, and, and just some of the steps that, that, that you've seen taken by, by folks in these spaces to really take control of the Supreme Court and then start doing what they swear or will tell you that liberals are doing, which is legislating from the bench? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I realized all of that in 2009 when I hmm. researched the 15-year strategy that led to that 2001 Supreme Court decision. Listen, this is a movement that is hiding in plain sight. It's not that they're it's not that they're not telling us what they want to do. They tell us what they want to do every step of the way and then they do it. It's that a lot of folks, I think in this sort of liberal and progressive space or moderates or whatever, or even kind of um, conservatives who are not on board with this radical agenda are not like, we're not listening. You know, right. they told us that when they, they despise our public schools, they want to destroy them. They told us that they want to, and they say it very openly that they want to ban abortion. I mean, overturning Roe versus Wade is just the beginning. They're just getting started. You know, I do a lot of my research by going to right wing strategy meetings and gatherings and summits and conferences. I go every year to the March for Life, the you know National uh, Pro-Life Summit. Anybody can go. You just buy a ticket and you go, or you just show up. And, you know, the, and, and they, they are very clear about the, what they want to do. I heard mm -hmm. from Students for Life of America President Christian Hawkins and also representative from the Alliance Defending Freedom that they want to ban that, that, um, Overturning raid was just the beginning. They want to take the fight to the states. They they want to craft long arm of the law legal um, uh, legal theories that allow people within, say, the state of Texas to sue someone in the state of Maine who's providing an abortion. Things like that. Uh, sue private businesses that participate in abortion. Uh, sue servers, internet servers, if they are providing wow. information about abortion. But what they really want to do is um, ban abortion from the moment of what they call fertilization. Mm -hmm. Nobody, frankly, knows when an egg is fertilized, but they want to, from the moment of fertilization, which would, by the way, outlaw certain kinds of birth control, they want to ban abortion everywhere in America. And they're very clear about this. They say it's going to take some time to set up, but they're very clear that this is what they want to do. And it's not just abortion. I mean, I think people need to understand that they're going after a range of individual rights. The right to vote, I think, is in, in peril. I think the right to free speech oh, yeah. and the right of the press is in peril. The right, um, certainly, to same-sex marriage is in peril. 
um, a range of other rights are entailed. Well, I think that's so important. Um, first, let me just say that, uh, you know, this is why I don't believe the rhetoric of, oh, no, it should be a state's rights issue. No, what, what they actually want is simply to ban abortion everywhere. And some in the movement, they call themselves abolitionists, want the death penalty for women, for women who get abortions. And that's not that's not a lie. I mean, you can look up Jeff Durbin and see him tell you that on camera that, that women who get abortions should be put to death. I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. And the pro-life movement will say, well, they're fringe, but they still allow those folks to inhabit those spaces, which should scare they also us. Move the, they move the Overton window. And I think that's by design. Yeah. I mean, this movement that has moved radically more to the, you know, in a more radical direction. Look, I wouldn't have predicted. Here's the surprise to me. I would not have predicted uh, that we, a president who actually, you know, th- th- I would not have predicted that the Republican Party, so many Republican Party politicians would actually stand behind the January 6th insurrectionists oh, and know. try to defend them. But at, at Road to Majority conferences, people like um, uh, uh, Metaxas, Eric Metaxas and uh-huh. Dinesh D'Souza, they're like, we need to stand behind those January 6th guys. We won't defend our guys even when they're good guys. And I think it was Metaxas said, you know, um, any, he said, any Republican politician who doesn't stand behind the January 6th people to me is dead. They're dead. We need yes. to defend these guys. And then Ralph Reed is there, as you know, he's like one of the most seasoned and astute, um, uh, leaders of this movement, strategists, and he sort of nods and he goes, I think Trump taught our movement a lot. What Trump taught this movement is uh, autocracy. I mean, Trump treats, he's, he's always praising kings and talking about kings and they compare him to him to king, like King Cyrus, a, an imperfect ruler through whom God chose to enact his will. Here's the thing about kings. They are not the kings of democracies. They are the law unto themselves. They don't have to obey the law. Right. They operate by decree. And that makes him, I would say, the perfect representative of a movement that doesn't believe in do- democracy in the first place. They believe a right thinking elite minority, you know, an elite group, but a right thinking group should dominate over all of the rest of us. And it doesn't matter how people vote. That's why one of the reasons they're so determined to discount the uh, consequences of elections that they don't like and also try to inhibit people's right to vote through gerrymandering, voter suppression, the kind of misinformation that they're spreading and also enacting insane laws. Like there's an old lady waiting in line in a gerrymandered district, mostly people of color, and she's going to wait a few hours. Somebody should bring her a chair and a glass of water. They're saying that's illegal. And that's just not right. That is not right. No, you're you're completely on the money here. You know we've covered the January sixth insurrection so often, um, and it, it it is it it is still to me one of those moments where I go, I can I even though it is what it is, I still can't believe that that evangelicals that I thought at least have some integrity still stand behind what happened or they downplay it. I mean, I we've spent on this show. Three hours responding to Ali Stuckey's podcast where she interviewed oh Julie Kelly, okay, <laughs> arguing that maybe the police incited the, the insurrection and and that, you know, the people who are getting prosecuted are prisoners of war. We went line by line and said, wrong, here's the fact check, wrong. I mean, all the way through, because the amount of propaganda from these people is it is truly outlandish. I do I also want to mention one more thing that, that that you hit on that I don't think people are aware of yet. Voting rights are a big deal 
And there are people like Doug Wilson um, who have advocated for a long-term goal of households voting, not not individuals oh, yeah. voting. Ab- and and Abby Johnson too. She's yes. a yeah, an anti-abortion activist. Yeah. Yeah, and now you also have. I'm not sure if if, if you've recognized uh, Stephen Wolf yet. If he's been on your radar, but he wrote the book uh-huh. Christian Nationalism. Yeah, he also yeah. advocates for that. This idea that really men who lead their households should be the one to cast the vote for their family. That is the direction of where. Christian nationalism wants to take us. Uh, and it's even worse than that. I mean, some of the comments by Stephen Wolf in his book are incredibly racist or blatantly racist. I mean, it's not even trying to hide it anymore. And it, it is frustrating, I think, for me, being in this Christian space, seeing these so-called moderate evangelicals say, well, it's fringe, both sides, not that big of a deal. I'm like, I'm like, you don't get it. If these folks get what they want, they will be ruling as a minority and they will change laws similar to what, what, to what Victor Orban has done in Hungary to make himself always legally the one in power, just conveniently. You know, he just happens to win every single time, legally, of course, after he changes the laws. That's the future, I think. Yeah, it's really shocking. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean, I, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I... I mean, I can picture people in the audience right now be like, Tim, like you cover this all the time and you're still shocked. I'm like, I'm like, well, maybe I saw the rose colored glasses on, or maybe I'm just not willing to admit that this is a, a, a feature, not a bug of conservative evangelicalism, given its history and, and how people have documented it. But I, I just, I just have a hard time believing that people can really say, Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. They can read the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and then say, yeah. Women shouldn't be able to vote. Yeah, the gays are destroying America. You know, yeah, destroy our enemies. I just have a hard time believing that, you know, but I guess it is what it is. <laughs> I know. You know, there are people who will watch a crime taking place and say, oh, they're not, you know, this isn't a crime. They'll like explain it away. I think sometimes it's really hard to listen to what people are saying and actually take in what they say. We try to reframe mm. what they're saying in order to make ourselves feel more comfortable often. Yes. Um, um, but they, uh, you know, when, when, when they say things like this, this is just, it's not normal. We should beware of the normalizers there. You know, when people watch the, uh, you know, uh, a, a bunch of people riding the Capitol and, you know, breaking into a government building and threatening to kill elected officials. And, uh, they might say, well, they're just exercising their first amendment rights. This is not normal. We should, really listen to members of this movement and and listen to what they're saying. They've finally got the Supreme Court that they want. They've got that and they're just getting started. So this idea of household voting, I mean, this is a movement that's so intent on, um, uh, you know, kind of, um, they're, they're so intent on, uh, what's it called? Um, complementarianism. I mean, there's some, there's some, uh, there's some changes. I mean, some variations, of course. The movement draws in representatives of the New Apostolic Reformation or uh, some Pentecostal and neo-charismatic groups that actually do have female leadership in their churches and things like that. Even as they are extremely right-wing, I'm thinking about folks like Cindy Jacobs um, and 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 people like that. Yeah. Um, Abby Abildness from the New Apostolic Reformation. They're you know female leaders. In those traditions and in those movements, but overall, I would say on balance, the movement is very hierarchical, very patriarchal, and um, the issue of, of women voting—I mean, it's not going to happen this year, but ten years down the line, if they get, you know, the political um, 
political picture that they want and they've got the courts that they want. I don't think it's out of the question. Well, I think this is a good thing to, to kind of start landing the plane on a little bit. And, and we're going to end on a positive note. I promise audience. I know if you're driving or you're maybe you're having like another existential crisis because of this episode, because it's so doom and gloom, but we have to be honest. Like we have to be honest and expose what's happening, even if it's uncomfortable, you know, but there is um, so much hope. I mean, that's the thing. I think that, um, you know, I think about the words of David Barton. He said, arm yourself with the mentality, not of, not of a sprinter, but of a distance runner. And he's absolutely right. This is kind of a generational struggle. This is a movement that we're, we're seeing the consequences of 50 years of investment of infrastructure. But here's the good news. The majority of Americans, Christian and non-Christian alike, reject this agenda. We have the power. We just need to use it. I'm seeing more pushback than I've ever seen before. I'm seeing more faith leaders standing up um, and saying this doesn't, you know, this is uh, uh, antithetical to our understanding of the gospel. I'm seeing um, a lot of folks in, uh, being engaged in civil liberties work and voting rights work and things like that. So I think that you know, we have to accept it's a big, noisy democracy. We're not all going to get everything we want all the time. But if we can come together when necessary and vote, that's really important to well, vote. I, I, I think the one thread I wanted to pull out, and then we're going to hit on that for, for a couple more minutes, then we'll, we'll wrap up here. And again, Catherine, thank you for your time. I mean, having you on is such an honor to have you. It's it's amazing. Aww. So I appreciate you taking time to talk to me. I, I think that one of the um, one of the problems, I think, uh, of our culture and, and maybe of some of the spaces that I exist in is that because social media is such a microwave culture of like, I want it now. I want it on demand. I want it on my time. I, I want the answers now. We don't understand that, like you said so eloquently, these folks have been playing the long game. They've waited 50 years to overturn Roe v. Wade. We mm -hmm. cannot expect to have overnight um, success or change. And, and that's why I try and tell the audience and people on, on our Instagram account, I, I asked them, are you really in this for the long haul? Because this is not just, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I, I sent my tweet, I did my episode, I'm done. This is a long-term conversation of really trying to bring awareness to what's happening in some of these more minority-based spaces of white evangelicalism and Christian nationalism. Because like you said, it's not, it's not, it's not the dominant, you know, uh, view. I mean, for one example of this, for the audience to give them some peace of mind, the only group in America who were in the majority for overturning Roe v. Wade were white evangelical Protestants. That's it. No other religious group in America wanted it overturned. So it's not a popular decision, but we have to be willing to invest and play the long game and to yeah. really do our best to stand on truth and on good faith dialogue to hopefully sway people back to some sense of like a healthy democracy that's functioning. That's true. You know, I always think of the words of Reverend Kelly Brown Douglas. She's in the head of Union Theological Seminary. And she says, the hope is in the struggle. Her ancestors were enslaved and they fought for freedom, even though they knew they would never experience it themselves. They fought on behalf of people that they would never see. And they should be our heroes. They knew they were fighting a righteous fight. And I think that, you know, we can take um, comfort from one another, you know, those of us who are sort of in this struggle together, I think we can take comfort from the values that really represent the best of the American promise, you know, mm. quality, justice, uh, freedom, you know, freedom of speech, freedom to vote, all of it, you know. Um, so I think that, listen, I, um, I think this is a sort of 
a struggle and challenge of our of our generation, but it's it's worth taking on. And um, there's a lot of beauty in 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 that struggle as well. Well, let's let's end there. I mean, what we do you got to meet? Isn't that cool? <laughs> I know it is cool. You know, it, it, honestly, it is. I mean, there's no doubt that. I mean, yeah. even even the fact that I do this work full time now, and that I'm, you know, I meet amazing people in our community, and we have amazing dialogue. Like that alone is such a gift, and such um, uh, because of it would never happen if it wasn't for where where we are today, right? I mean, I, yeah. I started new evangelicals because of the COVID response by evangelicalism was so terrible. I said we need a new movement, and that's how I started all this work. Um, and so certainly there's good. My last question to you is, yes, we have voting. We have other things. What is What What else can people do? Because I, I get this all the time. Oh, my God, Tim, it's so it's so drab. It's so dreary. I feel so powerless. And in, in a way, I get that because, you know, I can't go to Supreme Court and say, all right, you're off the bench. You're on the bench, right? And, <laughs> and that, that, that's a good thing, by the way, to be clear. I'm not asking for that power. But that's <laughs> not how our, how our world works. And, and the power as an individual is maybe more limited. So what are some ways? That, that you would encourage people uh, to, you know, kind of move forward? How do we move forward together in good faith? Well, there are things that we can do as individuals and things we can do when we join together with others. As individuals, number one, there's no substitute for the power of the vote. But more than that, you can create circles of people in your life and hold them accountable to vote. Even if you think they're going to vote the way that you would like them to vote, you can, you know, a lot of people can't. They've got, you know, kids, you can... They can't get to the polling station. They've got work. There's ways to hold folks in your circle accountable to vote. Um, so we're going to do this and then we're all going to meet up afterwards and I don't know, have a drink or something or do something <laughs> fun or go bowling, whatever it is, like, or volunteer, uh, your neighbors, you know, to babysit for their kids. Or if there's an elderly person in your community, say, can I drive you to the poll? I'd really love to, you know, be able to do that. Can, and, like that's really critical. I think we can't forget that politics, a lot of politics is local. Mm. So the right is getting engaged in their local yeah. community and their initiatives, their school boards. And that stuff really matters. We can all get involved in our local politics. And then there are things that we, and then of course you can volunteer your time for voting rights organizations or get out the vote initiatives or various types of civil, civil liberties initiatives. Um, and then there are things we can do when we join together, you know, be, become a part of these types of organizations that provide democratic infrastructure. Everything that promotes democracy building is really critical to do right now. Yeah. So there are no shortage of avenues for engagement. Everyone has a role to play. I used to think that we, if everybody just does one level up from what they did last time, none of us can fix this problem. Uh, by ourselves. But if we all just do a, like one level up from what we did the last time, I think we're going to, you know, we're going to go through some challenges and some bumps for sure. But um, well, we I, I love that. I think that's really good. Where can folks find you? I mean, are you on Twitter? Are you I am on- still on Twitter. <laughs> Same. Okay. Fight <laughs> the good fight. <laughs> still on Twitter, not paying for my blue check. My uh, Twitter yeah, handle seriously. is Kath S. Stewart. It's K-A-T-H-S-S-T-E-W. ART. Um, I do post most of my articles. Sometimes I forget to my website, which is katherinestewart.me. And if anybody wants to get in touch, you can also contact me through goodnewscatherine at gmail. And, um, uh, and that's, that's how you can get in touch. And my last book um, is The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. 
Am I allowed to ask you? Are there any new books on the way? Or are you are you hush hush about that? Or okay, you know when you're pregnant and it's like just three months and you're not sure if you should tell anybody. Sort of yes. like that. <laughs> yes. Okay. Fair enough. Well, when you're ready, let me know. I would love to Will hear do. about it. Uh, but okay. yeah, th- thanks again, Catherine, for coming on and sharing your wisdom and insight. It's always so helpful to get perspective from folks uh, who 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 are outside of the world that I am involved with, but still very much inside of it in a way. Uh, putting together pieces that help us better understand what we're actually a part of. I mean, it's just great to have you. So uh, keep in touch and I'm sure we'll do it again. Thank you. Looking forward to that. Looking for a new career? Welcome to Do HVAC Training Service Center in North Charleston. Enroll today in our comprehensive HVAC training hands-on field experience-based program covering troubleshooting, maintenance, installation, and more on various HVAC systems and ductwork. We offer EPA and NAIC preparation and testing along with various certifications. Enjoy payment options. Achieve certification in under five months. Enroll now for your new journey of skill development and career advancement. Log on to DEWHVACTrainingSC.com to enroll. Inquire.